Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, which can be found on page 1077 in your pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, a, uh, a passage we tend to read in December as we are looking forward to Christmas and Jesus' coming. But it's an important one uh, to read, not just at Christmas time, as it reminds us of what it is that everybody was looking forward to when God would send his Messiah. This is Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 9. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us. I would pray that you would help us to receive it um, and not take it lightly. God, that we would um, receive your word as the gift that it is, that we would use it for the purpose that you have given it. And God, that as we hear your word read and proclaimed this morning, that by your word and by your spirit, you would continue your work of transformation in our hearts and our lives. God, that even today, we would be brought closer in relationship with you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Turning into our New Testament lesson in 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. A letter written by the Apostle Peter. Starting in verse 13, he writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, 
but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that is what Peter wrote uh, years after Jesus' resurrection. But this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, when Peter first comes in contact with Jesus and how that happens. And actually, uh, we're not even going to be looking specifically at Peter most of the time. We're going to be looking at a guy named Andrew. And uh, this is his brother. So uh, this is from John chapter 1. And this is verses 35 through 42. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. We have been uh, reading our way through uh, the Gospel of John. And if you have not taken me up on the challenge yet, please do so. <laughs> Take the Gospel of John and read it all in one sitting. Take an hour, hour and a half, just read all the way through it in one sitting. Um, if you have, you'll understand why I give that challenge. If not, it's time. All right. But uh, what we've been looking at thus far is the way that John has been explaining Jesus kind of coming on the scene. And we've been looking at John the Baptist and the way that John the Baptist has been pointing uh, to Jesus. And last week we saw him actually point Jesus out and say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, it's kind of where we begin again this week. Verse 35, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. All right. Let me go back through this. We're going to talk about uh, what exactly is going on here. And um, the first thing we want to talk about, of course, is John the Baptist pointing out, uh, pointing out Jesus as the Lamb of God. And this is something that we have seen from John the Baptist even before he was born. Remember this? When he is filled with the Holy Spirit, still in his mother's womb, and then Mary shows up, and he is jumping around, <laughs> pointing out the Messiah even before he's born. That's 
pretty crazy stuff. But that's consistently what we then see from John the Baptist as he grows up and as he's a part of this ministry out in the wilderness and baptizing people. And we saw last week that uh, he had been told before he goes out baptizing that it's the reason he's baptizing is to show people who the Messiah is. But he doesn't know who the Messiah is <laughs> yet. He says, but it's the one on whom you see the Spirit come down and stay. And so then when this happens, then he's like, all right, that's the guy. That's the guy. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this is uh, the role that we talked about before that we're kind of in, is pointing people to Jesus. But here's where this gets tricky, because here's the next thing that happens in our passage today, is he says, look, the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist has disciples of his own, and it says that two of them were standing there with him. And when he says, look, the Lamb of God, what do they do? They take off, and they go start following Jesus, and they leave John the Baptist standing there. (laughs) Is that weird? This is one of those things where it's kind of like depending on how uh, you understand John the Baptist's motives here. This is either like a good thing or a bad thing. These two disciples leave him, right? And so imagine that John the Baptist's main objective is gathering to himself as many disciples as he can. And then he says, look, the Lamb of God, and two of them just up and leave him. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That would be a bad thing, right? Ah, the numbers are dwindling. (laughs) We can't, I'm not retaining uh, the same number of disciples as before. This is going to look bad. But is that John the Baptist's motive? Not at all. What's, what's been his point the whole, <laughs> his whole life is trying to help people to see who the Messiah is and to follow him. Not to follow John the Baptist, but to follow him. And so he points him out and says, look, the Lamb of God. And two people get up and they just leave and they go and they follow Jesus. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? That's a great thing. <laughs> that this has been what John the Baptist is uh, working towards. He'll actually say... Um, in chapter 3, skip ahead a little bit. In chapter 3, verse, uh, oh, let's see, 29 and 30, John the Baptist talking about Jesus says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. In other words, if all the disciples that John the Baptist had gathered around himself If every single one of them left him and followed Jesus, that would not be a failure. That would be success. That's what he's been about, is getting people to follow Jesus, not to follow him. Does that make sense? And this is one of those things we mentioned earlier, you know, the lest we miss thy kingdom's goal. This is one of those areas where it's real easy to get off track in today's world. And so there is a purpose for the church to exist. And it's really easy to get off track and start thinking it's about just getting numbers. And it's not about getting numbers. It is about helping people to follow Jesus, right? And so even if somebody leaves a particular church to go somewhere else, the question is not did they leave, but why did they leave? And if the reason that they are leaving is so that they can go somewhere else where they can follow Jesus better, so they have... uh, They feel like God is calling them to a particular ministry that requires them to move, then that is not a bad thing that they are leaving. That is a great thing and should be celebrated. Um, That's often not why people tend to leave churches, but it does happen. 
And it is a good thing and should be celebrated when people actually leave uh, in order to follow Jesus. Um, but the whole point there is just remembering what the goal is, is helping people to follow Jesus, not just helping people uh, to be a part of the crowd, so to speak. All right. So what happens when they do, when these two do go and follow Jesus? It's this funny little interaction where they follow Jesus, and then he turns around, he sees them, and he asks, and asks, what do you want? Which, I don't know when you're reading that, if you read it in a different voice, where he's like, what do you want? But um, <laughs> that might be how we would answer if somebody's following us, like, hey, what do you want? But I don't read that as how Jesus says it. But this is more the, okay, you've got my attention, how can I help you kind of thing. <laughs> and what they ask is, where are you staying? Which, again, strikes us as a little weird. It's like, that's kind of an invasion of privacy. It's a personal question, where am I staying? But this is the way that this worked in this, um, in this culture. I think the, a helpful way to think about it, which is more relevant in my world these days, is thinking about it like a college visit um, and the college application process. And here's what I mean by this, is the way that they would do things is you've got these rabbis that are going around teaching, and you would say, okay, let me see what rabbis are out there. Who do I want to follow? And so you, okay, that guy seems like he's legitimate guy. I may, may want to follow him. And so you'd go and you'd find out more, do like a campus visit, and then you'd, say, you'd make your application. Hey, I would like to uh, be your disciple. And then they would say, okay, yes or no. And, and so very much in line with this uh, kind of college visit and application process. So what they're doing when they say, where are you staying, is kind of we want to go and hang out with you for a bit and see if you're the rabbi we want to follow. <laughs> you know, we've heard from, from John, but we want to see for ourselves. And I think that's another important part of all of this is uh, then he says, oh, well, hang on, we'll get there. He says, uh, they say, where, where are you staying? And his response is, come, come, and you will see. So at this point, they could have said, where are you staying? He's like, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not looking for any disciples. I'm not interested in that sort of thing. Thanks anyway, but, you know go check out a different rabbi. But instead, his response is, come on, come on. And this is one of the things to look for with Jesus through the Gospels, particularly in John. You see this constant invitation, come to me, come to me, come to me. I know this because I was trying to find a particular phrase where Jesus says, come to me. And so I tried to search just that phrase in my uh, Bible software where Jesus says, come to me. And it turns out it's not just the one place. It's all over the time, all over the place that he's constantly inviting people to come to him. Um, but the one that I was particularly looking for was in uh, chapter 5 when uh, Jesus says, <laughs> verse 37, the father has, who sent me has, has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Think about that. 
Jesus' constant invitation is to come to him. And as you read through the story, many times people do come to him. And a lot of times people, even after hearing that invitation, don't, right? And he invites them to come, and they turn away, and they go elsewhere. And one of the things that he said actually has gotten in the way of some of these people is the scriptures themselves, which is the weirdest thing, that reading the Bible would actually be a way to stay away from Jesus. But it can be. It is not the same thing to read the Bible and to come to Jesus. These do go very much together, but let me give you an illustration I think is helpful in this, and that is um, someone who really likes watching the Food Network. You watch the Food Network, you get inspired by the delicious meals they create. You, you buy all the cookbooks, you read through all the recipes, you, oh, this is, such, this is good stuff, and you go to the grocery store and you just ooing and aahing over all the ingredients and you... Uh, and you pull it all together, you buy it, you get it home, and you follow the instructions, and you make these delicious meals, and as soon as you get it made, you're like, oh, isn't it wonderful? And then you throw it in the trash, and you start all over. (laughs) Wait, no, no, you missed the whole point. (laughs) The whole point of learning about food and the preparing of the food, obtaining the food, preparing it, is to eat it and get nourishment that you would have life. And so when you're doing all the rest of it, that's good, but only if it then leads to the eating of it that it would give you life. And so uh, keeping on the same uh, metaphor here, a lot of times people will see, you know, hear Jesus saying, you know, you diligently study the scriptures, and yet that's keeping you from coming coming to me because you think it's in them that you have life. No, it's it's in me. And so they go, oh, well, in that case, let's get rid of the Bible and just go to Jesus. Mm. So to keep with the metaphor, that would be like saying, it's not important to know what's edible or not. The important thing is eating. I was like, mm, no, if you don't know the difference between food and poison, you're going to be in, in trouble just as quickly uh, than if you don't eat at all. And so, yes, read the scriptures, but understand that the point of reading the scripture is not to read the scripture. The point is, come to me, come to me, come to me. That is his constant uh, refrain. And so this is what um, what Andrew discovers as he goes to Jesus. It, uh, the, other, the other one, the disciple's not named here. A lot of people think it's John who wrote this book. It makes sense. But anyway, so uh, these two go, and they say, where are you staying? And he says, come. Come, and you will see. And so here's that invitation. And so what do they do? They go with him, and they see. And they spend the day with him. It's about four in the afternoon. And then what is the first thing they do? After they have been hanging out with Jesus, they have been feeding on him, not just hearing from John the Baptist, ooh, tell us more about this Lamb of God. What is that about? But going to Jesus, spending the day with him. And then what's the first thing they do? First thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah that is, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Come on, application there is pretty straightforward, isn't it? I mean, is this good news or bad news? When he says, we have found the Messiah. This is good news. This is something they have been waiting for for a really, really long time, that at some point God is going to send this one. And Andrew goes and he 
you know, here's John the Baptist preaching and teaching, and then he and baptizing. And then here's John the Baptist say, look, it's the Lamb of God. And so he goes after this guy and says, where are you staying? He says, come and see. And so he goes with him, and he's hanging out with this guy and hearing him and seeing him firsthand. It's like, this is it. He is the one that God was going to send. And the first thing he does when he hears this, when he realizes this good news, is to go find his brother, to tell his brother the good news, right? Now, I don't know if you have ever eaten something that was so delicious you wanted to make everybody else at the table eat it. <laughs> like, oh you've, oh, you've got to try this. You've got to try this. It's so good. You've got to have some of this. Anybody, anybody do that? Anybody just live with somebody who does that? And you're like, no. I'm <laughs> Or if you've ever heard a song that just oh, really hits you and you're like, oh, you've got to hear this. You've got to hear this. Oh, it's so good. I mean, there's so many things uh, that when we have these good moments or good experiences or we learn something amazing, you just want to share it. You, you don't want to have that alone. You want to have somebody else that you, can, uh, that you can share that with. I think that's actually one of the reasons uh, why the whole selfie phenomenon has happened (laughs) is because people would find themselves somewhere by themselves and they didn't want to experience it just by themselves. They wanted to share it with other people. And so they're like, well, I got my phone. I'll just take a picture of myself here and then I can share it with everybody because it's, this is an amazing place. And it, it seems like it's lacking if it's just me experiencing it by myself. And so this is what Andrew did. He didn't take a selfie, but he went and he found his brother and said, we have found the Messiah. And he didn't just say, I found the Messiah, and in typical sibling rivalry fashion say, and I found him first, so I get the points. No, the point was not to win points on his brother. It was to bring his brother to Jesus too. And so he says, we have found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. All right, now think back to John the Baptist. You remember what John the Baptist did? He says, the Lamb of God. And then the disciples go and they follow Jesus. And we look at that and we say, that's that's a a win. That's a good thing. People are following Jesus. And now the people that are following Jesus are actually finding other people and saying, come, (laughs) follow Jesus. And they're issuing that same kind of invitation, not because they have to, but because they're excited about what they found, that Jesus is the Messiah. And then, uh, last verse, he brought him Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. A couple quick points on this. One is Peter gets his name changed. I mean, it's, it's Simon, right? And Jesus calls him Peter. And there's a lot in the Bible that has to do with names and naming and what that indicates. But one of the things that it indicates is that Jesus, as we read in Isaiah, uh, let's see, see. he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions uh, for the poor of the earth. That Jesus uh, does not just take things as they are, but he sees beyond what's just on the surface. And so when Andrew brings his brother Simon and they show up together, Jesus looks at Simon and says, nah, you're not Simon, you're Peter. 
That's who you are. <laughs> You're Peter, which means rock. And so we find out in Matthew that he, the reason he says is, on this rock I will build my church. Now, if you follow the rest of the story through and you watch Peter, you might start thinking Jesus missed it. That No, I think you got the wrong guy. This is not the guy who should be the rock. This guy is the quickest one to say the wrong thing and then have to kind of take it back. I mean, this is, this is always the guy who's very quick to act, but he is not very steady and stable and rock-like. Why are you calling him the rock? But as you go forward and you see what happens after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit comes in his life, it totally makes sense. In other words, Jesus is calling Simon now Peter, even though nobody else in the world would call him Peter until a lot later. Does that make sense? That Jesus knows who he really is or who he's going to become. And that's how he talks to him, even from day one. How cool is that? So for a lot, anybody here have a past? (laughs) Yeah? We have a past, right? And for a lot of us, uh, you're very glad that your past is in the past. But that's not who you are anymore. But you know what's really neat? is that uh, when you were in the middle of your past, (laughs) Jesus didn't define you by that, right? He saw something else. He saw something different. And so here's part of the challenge for us. If you are currently living in what you hope one day will be your past, (laughs) that's that's not your identity, the way that Jesus sees you. He has something else for you. But also, if you have, uh, if your past is in the past and you're grateful for that, know that the people around you, the people you interact with on a daily basis, many of those people, what hopefully one day will be in their past is currently their present. And so the challenge for us is how do we not let their present identify who they are? How can we see people more like Jesus does? That uh, seeing that there's something beyond even what they're currently in the middle of. Uh, One final thing. As we've been talking through the experiences of uh, Andrew's time there, he heard from John the Baptist, then he went and stayed with Jesus. He sees him as the Messiah. He goes and he shares this good news with his brother. Uh, a lot of people say that uh, the Pentecost is kind of the birthday of the church. It's the first place the church begins. And there are others who say, actually, it was this moment right here. <laughs> because this is where we see people coming to Jesus and then sharing the good news. There's that too. Um, I don't know. I tend to agree with those who say that Pentecost is the day. But we'll talk about that some other time. But I do think this is a good illustration of what happens in the church, of people coming to Jesus, hearing about him, then coming to him, not just coming to hear more about him, but coming to him, and then understanding the good news that he is, um, sharing those with others. But as I say, one final thing, and that is, did you notice that through this short little passage, there were three times that John translated words for us? Did you notice that? going through. Verse 38, they said, Rabbi, 
which means teacher. Uh, Verse 41, we found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. Verse 42, you will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. What is going on here? Why is he constantly translating words? And that is because all three of these, by the way, are names that people are being called, or titles, the rabbi, messiah, and Cephas. And they're being called that in either Hebrew or Aramaic. And so he wants to keep that the same and say, this is what they were called. But at the same time, he's writing to people who are reading Greek. They're not reading Hebrew. They're not reading Aramaic. And so he knows that. So he doesn't just give those names, but he's like, oh, and here's what that means. Let me tell you what it means. And so here's the, uh, what I think is important to note with this, is that as we are looking at telling people the good news, and this is what John is all about. Remember what we've said, that he wrote this whole book. He says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote this book. But he's writing to people who speak Greek. And so every time he encounters one of these Hebrew words or Aramaic words, he's like, well, this is what they were called. I'm going to use that word, but then he makes a translation to help them to understand. And so as we are sharing the good news of Jesus, we have to keep in mind what it is that people do know, what it is they don't know, and where there's areas they don't know, help to bridge that gap for them, to make those translations for them, not to assume that they are already where we are, if that makes sense. Um. Sometimes this is in translating (laughs) actual words. A lot of times it's translating ideas. And so many of the illustrations you hear (laughs) from in the sermon where it's like, well, it's kind of like this, and I give you a whole illustration. That's what I'm doing. Just trying to translate what's written here into a way that we can all understand and go, oh, I see. It's like that. But that's not just for preaching. This is what we do. is uh, in all of education, is you're trying to meet people where they are and help them where they need to go. And if you miss either one of those, you're not helping. And so sometimes it's a translation that's needed to meet them where they are and to help them where they need to go. Um, if you remember one thing from Andrew's experience... <laughs> Remember one thing from this passage we're reading in John today. Remember this. It is coming to Jesus that is important. All the rest aside, it is coming to Jesus that is important. Because it is in him that we have life. And it is in him that we find the good news that becomes irresistible to share. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.